Welcome to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD. I'm Dr. John Buse, and joining us to talk about her study focusing on heterogeneity and endotypes in type 1 diabetes is Dr. Maria Redondo. She's a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Diabetes and Endocrinology at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas. Maria, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. It's really my pleasure. I'm very happy to be able to talk with you all today. I read your review on heterogeneity and type 1 diabetes with great interest. Most clinicians have thought of type 1 diabetes as being fairly monolithic, even though we've often noted that there are some patients who respond differently to care. Can you tell us about the general pathophysiology of type 1 diabetes and the various approaches that you've used to define heterogeneity to just sort of get us on the same baseline with regards to what we'll talk about later? Yeah, absolutely. So what we know of type 1 diabetes today is that there's a genetic predisposition. So in most people, there are some genes that are known to make someone more predisposed to developing this disease. And then in addition, there's something coming from the environment that so far it seems to be a virus. And then in these people with this particular makeup, it triggers an autoimmune response directed against some of the antigens, some of the proteins that are in the eyelids where the insulin, of course, is produced. So then there's that process happens actually way before the person develops the clinical symptoms of type 1 diabetes. And we know that it's happening because there's those islet antibodies that are measurable in blood of most people who will develop type 1 diabetes. And then at some point, that autoimmune attack that is destroying beta cells ends up causing such a loss that the system cannot maintain normal glucose. So basically, there's less insulin being produced than insulin that is needed to maintain euglycemia. And that's when type 1 diabetes happens. So this process is very heterogeneous, way more than we were thinking before. So for example, we know that age has a huge effect. Children who develop diabetes very early have a much more aggressive disease. It progresses much faster. They are left without any cells that make insulin that can be appreciated in the histopathology samples that are for example, being collected by the IMPOD study. And then as opposed to that, people who develop diabetes later, adolescents, young adults, you know, all adults who also can present with type 1 diabetes have a much smaller process. They do not always end up losing completely the ability to make insulin. And even in the case of what we called in the kind of recent past LADA, LADA and autoimmune diabetes in, in adults or slowly progressive autoimmune diabetes, then they can actually have even a, some time where insulin is not needed. So they present with diabetes, they don't need insulin. Many times they are actually misdiagnosed with type 2 diabetes, but in fact, they have those autoimmune markers that is type 1 diabetes, and then that process continues and they ultimately develop insulin dependency. In your paper, you talk about type 1 diabetes and the type 1 and type 1 diabetes and a type 2. And it's based on some pretty sophisticated markers that I don't think most clinicians use, like T-cell markers and specific genotypes. How do you think clinicians should be thinking about this specifically in their day-to-day practice? So an adult who presents with diabetes does not automatically have type 2 diabetes is the most common, but type 1 is something that we need to keep in the back of our minds. To me, that's the most pragmatic aspect at this point. 
But I think that, you know, very soon we'll see how these new treatments that are, you know, the plisumab uh, is now the, the one that is FDA approved to prevent the progression to type 1 diabetes. And then there's some drugs, some agents such as verapamil that has been shown to slow down the loss of beta cell function after the onset. APG has also shown that. So there's different response and there are some markers, genetic markers, age, some other characteristics that are telling us that some things work better in some people than in others. So I think that not quite yet, but very soon we will be able to tailor those newer treatments to the specific characteristics of the person. So I think that for the clinician, it's just kind of keeping that in mind that that is coming and hopefully we'll be able to tailor treatments better. So you mentioned before about latent autoimmune diabetes in adults or LADA. Many, many people have heard about that. But one thing that you wrote about in the paper that I don't think we think about as much is what you described as slowly progressive insulin-dependent diabetes. Can you tell us about the distinction that you're trying to make there? So as we said before, there's a a huge effect of age. So Many people who develop type 1 diabetes later have a slower process where their loss of beta cell function happens over the course of years. And they hover around the threshold where you need insulin for longer time. And that is what we call slowly progressive autoimmune diabetes in adults, which actually also happens in children. And we have seen that. And I think that is very similar to what is also called Latin autoimmune diabetes in adults. So at the end of the day, as physicians, we know that we are faced with a person that may have not just a single disease, but different pathogenic mechanisms going on. One is the autoimmune process that is slowly distracting beta cells in slowly in this particular case of older adults, and in addition, all of the type 2 diabetes components. And then our goal is, of course, to be able to address all of those pathogenic mechanisms from a diagnostic standpoint, but also from prevention, as we think about how to prevent that type 1 diabetes from developing and from progressing. And then hopefully, as we think also for treatment of disease, once that person has developed diabetes. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD. I'm Dr. John Buse, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Maria Redondo about her study on the heterogeneity and endotypes in type 1 diabetes. How about the term type 1.5 diabetes? What's the meaning there? So many times it is used as a synonym of double diabetes. So basically, this is a person that has both elements of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And that type 1 can be not even slowly progressive, but just regular type 1 diabetes, that the classical picture that we see. But in addition, you have obesity. So that is contributing to the complications and even to the phenotype. For example, talking more about children, maybe because that's the practice that I have, but they have higher C-peptide. So we see children who present with classical type 1 diabetes with obesity and their C-peptide is higher, right? So that is a clear case of that double diabetes having those two types that can also be called one and a half, right? But I think that the other reason why it was applied or has been applied to the slowly progressive diabetes, which not always has that type 2 component, many times it has, but not always, is because the slowly progressive autoimmune diabetes can develop so slowly that to the clinician, it appears as type 2 diabetes 
until they realize that this person has, in fact, type 1 diabetes. To give an example, so an adult who presents with diabetes, 90% of the diabetes in adults are going to be type 2, classified as type 2, is given metformin that doesn't respond well. And very quickly, we see the need of adding insulin. And then going back to the drawing board, we test antibodies and sure enough, those antibodies are positive. So that is a picture of one and a half in the sense that it looked like two, but now I realize that it is one and it is definitely a different picture, right? So I think corresponds more closely to what we call today slowly progressive type 1 diabetes or, or LADA, right? Which those two terms are usually referring to the same syndrome. So maybe another way of thinking about it is when you have double diabetes, people will generally respond to the type 1 diabetes therapy, but they'll also respond to the type 2 diabetes therapy. And maybe when you're thinking of it more as sort of type 1.5, they don't really respond to the type 2 diabetes therapy very well, which makes you realize that, you know, it's really type 1 diabetes and we need to focus on things like multiple daily injections of insulin or insulin pumps. So the way I see the people who have type 1 diabetes and in addition, some components of type 2 could benefit from drugs that we use for type 2 diabetes in addition to insulin, which of course they need because they lack insulin, right? For example, the T1D exchange did a study some time ago trying metformin in adolescents with obesity and type 1 diabetes. And A1C, which was the primary outcome, did not change. But what the authors realized is that these children improved insulin resistance, which of course in itself is, is a good thing, right? So, so then we did a secondary analysis and found that there are some predictors. In this case, was a leptin that was able to predict who respond, who of those children who have type 1 and obesity will respond with a decrease of insulin resistance by taking metformin. So I think that's a good example of how we have to start thinking about a person has classical type 1, but in addition has obesity-induced insulin resistance. That is another pathogenic mechanism that may deserve treatment, for example, with metformin. I think the, the sort of newest emerging area is around the GLP-1 receptor agonists and what to do in the patient with double diabetes, type 1 diabetes, obesity, dyslipidemia, hypertension, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, heart failure, chronic kidney disease, where I have had patients who responded fabulously to the GLP-1 receptor agonists and all those sort of metabolic type 2 diabetes aspects as they lost weight, we often have trouble getting coverage for treating their type 1 diabetes with these drugs. And actually, because I do think they have double diabetes, I've actually taken to diagnosing them with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And sometimes that has helped with the discussion with insurance companies. In pediatrics, is that an area that you're starting to, to embrace? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, in pediatrics, we are late adopters, number one, because many of the drugs are not approved in younger children. But you know, we have adolescents, older adolescents, who many times are even at the age where these agents can be used. But I think that traditionally, we are kind of reluctant to use additional medications. But I think that that is so true. For example, GLP-1 agonists have really shown to have some beneficial effects on, on the beta cell. And today we know that type 1 diabetes is not just a disease where the immune system is wrong, attacking a completely healthy beta cell. That is not the case. The beta cell has already some abnormalities. And, and these agents really are promising in terms of 
increasing the health of the, of the beta cell. This has been a really interesting conversation. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Maria Redondo, for sharing her findings on heterogeneity and endotypes in type 1 diabetes. Maria, it was really great speaking with you today. Thank you very much, John. For ReachMD, I'm Dr. John Buse. To access this and other episodes from our series, visit Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD.com, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.